You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's a joy to be together. Great to see so many uh, new faces this morning. Look forward to getting to know you uh, or even just meet you if I haven't gotten to meet you yet today. My name is Pastor Rush. I'm one of the pastors here at Paramount. And it's my joy on this Sunday morning to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text, which is Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. And actually, this morning, we're bringing this summer preaching series called Your Gospel is Too Small to a close with a message entitled, The Gospel Means More Than Anything. And so we have been considering in this series, as we uh, try to do on a regular basis every Sunday, in some sense, to understand more deeply the good news of Jesus Christ and to expand our vision for what God has done in Christ for us and, and what Jesus has done, what he is doing, what he has promised to do, because we know that that is the, the lifeblood. It is the source of our happiness in Christ, and we want to maximize that to the glory of God. And then after this Sunday, we will return to our preaching series uh, verse by verse through the book of Philippians, and uh, as we'll be continuing to consider together there how we can be connoisseurs of happiness. Again, on that same theme of how can we be satisfied and delight in Christ more and more day by day. Uh, This summer, I've been doing some reading, and one of the books that's caught my attention and has been really enjoyable for me to read is a book called Born Standing Up by Steve Martin, the comedian, someone that I grew up watching on Saturday Night Live and in movies, and this book really is his account of his life and the influences that brought him into comedic stardom, how he thinks about comedy, how he thinks about life. And it's been a real joy for me to read this. And one of the things that I have noticed in this book and uh, others, as I enjoy learning about comedy and, and comedians and the art, because it really is an art to being funny. It's not an art I claim to have, but it's an art I wish I had, and I'd like to know more about it. But as I have studied some comedians, I have noticed that they have an ability to see inside the joke what others cannot see. And that's really true even in this book by Steve Martin. One of the uh, points that I read was uh, he had a kind of mentor named Dave Stewart. And early in his comedic career, he would try to study other comedians, and Dave Stewart was one. And he remembers Dave Stewart starting off his act with what he called the glove into dove trick. And he had a white glove on, and he said, now it's time for the, the glove into dove trick. And he would take off his white glove and he would throw it into the air and the glove would just fall on the ground. And then he would move on with his next joke. Exactly. You're making the point. When I hear that, I don't see it. I don't see what's within the joke. I don't see the humor, but Steve Martin does. He is looking into the joke and seeing something that I'm not seeing. And that really is, for me, a clear reflection of what what we're after in our pursuit of the gospel. When you think about the gospel, if we were to lay it out before the world, the world would hear it, and without eyes to see and ears to hear, just would not get it. They couldn't see what is inside of it. 
like we can. And we know that it's not our doing, but by grace alone that God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear, that when we hear the good news of Christ, we get it. When we see what Christ has done for us and what he is doing and what he has promised to do, we get it. We want to get the gospel more and more and more. And so this morning, it is yet another attempt of ours in the word of God, Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, to consider together how the gospel means more than anything with three truths. And these truths are simple. They're easy to remember, but we pray that God would use them in profound ways. The first is that the gospel is a treasure. Let's read verses 44 and 45 uh, through 46. I'll read aloud while you read in your heart. This is what the word of God says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. I want to notice first that the gospel, the kingdom of God, which we know to be all about God's people in God's place under his gracious rule that is summed up in the gospel message of what Jesus Christ has has done for us, his people, by living and dying and rising again, making a forever home for us and walking with us through this this difficult fallen world, uh, carrying us ultimately to his eternal kingdom forevermore, that the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, as it's referred to in this text, is a treasure. First, notice in the text that the kingdom of heaven is pictured as actually two treasures, one in a field and one in the water. But I want you to notice first, as we think about the gospel as a treasure, the kingdom of God as a treasure, that the word he uses in Greek for treasure is the word that means not simply one treasure, but a storehouse of treasures. It is a treasure trove that contains endless pleasures forevermore. That's the way that the kingdom of God is described here. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. You might even have one of these. I don't know how common it is. In fact, well, we don't have one, but you might have a vault in your house, some kind of a, a safe that's locked so that you can keep things that, that are precious to you or maybe down in a post office box. I mean, uh, not a post office box, a bank. You wouldn't want to do that at the post office box. That's an unsafe place to put your treasures, but that's another sermon. But you can put them in a safe or a vault in your house and lock them up securely. You think about the family heirlooms that you might put there uh, or other prized possessions. That is another kind of earthly picture of what the gospel is, though it could never do justice. It's not merely just one treasure sitting in a room. It's actually a, a vault. It is a trove of treasures forevermore. I don't know if this is an intentional part of the language, but I can't help but pair what else I know about the gospel. It is not merely 
one coin of treasure, but a trove of what I would like to call gospel blessings. Let's think about that language for a moment, especially because we have been coming sort of through and out of for a moment in the month of July. There are series preaching through the book of Philippians in which we have considered what blessing really means. That when the Bible uses the word blessing or blessed, it is the word for happiness. In other words, the Bible is exalting for us the ultimate happiness that comes from knowing Christ and belonging to him. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Happy are the peacemakers and so forth. And so as we think about this language of gospel blessings, when we envision the gospel as a kind of treasure trove, what we're saying is that the gospel is a vault full of happinesses. It's a treasure trove of happy treasures that belong to us in Christ. And now sometimes we admit we are afraid of seeking after more, which is what the Bible routinely tells us to do, to continue seeking after God in the sense if we could have more of him. We know that that in Christ he belongs to us and we belong to him, but there is this sense in the Christian life in which we're ever pursuing him more. I want to see you more clearly. I want to know you more deeply. I want to walk with you more consistently. I want to enjoy you more and more and more. You know, I admit sometimes that language is hard for us to hear. I don't know if it perhaps is because we hear that same kind of language out in the world. Because we live in a world in which it seems as though everyone is clamoring for more and more and more. But it would be to our great detriment as Christians if we were then, because we see that kind of pursuit for more, to assume that it must be sinful, it must be wrong to pursue more. Well, the big question is what are we pursuing? In this text and many others, we are pursuing the ultimate satisfaction in Christ, that we want more and more and more satisfaction in Him to His glory. We want to be more and more, if we want to put it in these romantic terms, in love with him. We want our faith to increase, and therefore we ought to be pursuing the gospel as a treasure, an ultimate treasure, praying for and striving after more and more. Again, of course, we we are drawing a distinction between other kinds of Christian pursuits that ask for more. Because there is certainly something like the prosperity gospel, which is is not in step with Scripture at all. The idea that if, if we really pursue God, he will give us more and more things. He'll give us more and more riches, more money, more actual treasures to put into our P.O. box. That's exactly where you should put those. But instead, what we are in pursuit of is Christ himself. We are not merely interested in more money and nicer cars and bigger houses and greater earthly experiences. We are after the riches of heaven. Listen to what Ephesians 3.20 says. Paul says, now to him who is able to do, listen to this, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine 
according to his power that is at work within us. Paul is drawing attention in this verse and many other places to the reality that God can and does more than you could ever imagine. And therefore, what is the logical response to that kind of God? Pursue him more. Keep expanding your imagination of his goodness so that you may know more of it. Keep expanding your imagination of his glory and his supremacy, of his power and his mercy and everything else that you know about him in scripture. Approach him as though he is, because he is, the treasure of life. Therefore, the first use of this text or application to our lives would be that we must make a priority to meditate on the treasure of Christ, which is his good news kingdom. To make our meditation more and more, what does it mean to belong to a God who has lavished upon us grace and mercy? What does it mean to walk faithfully with a God who not only delights in us, but longs to be and is the source of our delight in life? This must become a priority for us, though, and it's one of the most challenging ones for all of us because we live in a world of distraction. There are so many things that we can focus on. We have lots of responsibilities, and yet this must become our ultimate aim and desire. Second, we notice in this text that the gospel is, if you haven't seen it already, to be sought after above all else. Notice again these two kind of parables or pictures of those who found the kingdom of heaven and they found it as a treasure. There are two people, one living and one looking This is an interesting thing that I have not noticed in this text before, but it's been a blessing to me as I've I've been praying about it and thinking about it in my own life. I want you to notice between verse 44 and then 45 and 46, a little difference between these two people. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. First, there is one person who is living. He comes to the kingdom of heaven. He comes to find this treasure in the field. It does not say by searching for it. It seems as though he's in the normal course of his work and life, and in the course of it, it's revealed to him. It it appears to him. And when he finds it, though, we see what his response is. He seeks after it. He does everything he can in order to gain it for himself. But notice then there is another picture in verses 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. One person is living and one person is looking. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. I don't know if this is intended in the text, but I cannot help but notice a difference between what my life has been like because I have been both the living and the looking. And I think that every person is one of these two things. I was, until around my 18th birthday, merely living. I was out in the world doing my daily thing when Christ came to me and revealed his kingdom to me. Through the words of of others who shared the gospel with me, my eyes were opened, my ears were unstopped, and I came to know Christ once and for all. And then in that moment, I became someone who was looking. 
he transformed me as he's likely transformed you. If you're, you have faith in Christ, you have had the same path. You were someone who was just out living. You were not looking. You were not searching. There is no one who seeks for God. There's not even one. But when he finds you, he transforms you into a person who's not only living, but now looking, searching for the treasure, continuing in your pursuit of him as he continually pursues and walks with you. I think this is an important distinction for us to see because in a way we want to be both because they're both seeking after the treasure. And in a way this helps us to understand what our Christian life has been made of. But whatever it means, it raises at least this important question. Everyone is on a search of some kind. And the question is, are you searching for the ultimate treasure among other treasures? It's a real testimony to the goodness of God, even his common grace, that we live in a fallen world, and yet a fallen world that is full. It is full of good things. As many ways as we can look at the world and see that it's a, it, it is a place of misery. It is a place of grief and hardship. It is a place of, of death and suffering. Nevertheless, God in his mercy has preserved so many treasures. And then when we come to Christ in the Christian life, we notice that our life is not just one treasure. It's actually a bunch of treasures all summed up in Christ, who is the ultimate But again, we must ask the question, what are we searching for? With this reminder that the gospel is to be sought after, but it is to be sought after above all else. The kingdom of heaven is to be our ultimate concern and our ultimate focus. It would be not unlike an incredible archaeological find in the 1920s. A British archaeologist named Howard Carter discovered the tomb of a young Egyptian pharaoh, Tutankhamun, in the Valley of the Kings. And there in the tomb were all kinds of treasures, all about, all interconnected. But then in the search, there was one. Actually, it's the funerary mask of Tutankhamun, of what he wore over his face or his shroud, which has become the kind of crowning achievement of the find. You see, this again is a kind of picture for us of what the Christian life is like. It is full of treasures. There are many things that can delight and please us, and many of those should. God gives us all things so that we would enjoy them, but we must be careful. We must be careful that we're not only people who are just living among them, but that we're people who are looking for the ultimate treasure, that we are seeking Christ above all else, and that he is the ultimate source of our satisfaction and joy. I want you to notice something else about the, uh, the merchant in search of fine pearls, and it is in particular that he was a merchant. He is someone who is uniquely focused on value. He is searching for what is most valuable, longing to make it his own. Again, in a similar way, perhaps, the way that we as Christians have dealt even recently with the the idea of happiness, or even more recently this morning, the idea that we would pursue a, a quest for more and more in Christ, it seems that we also shy away from this value mindset as Christians today. 
And I wonder again if it's the similar kind of thing that because we hear out in the world this talk of value and searching for, for something valuable or the riches of the world that we have equated that search with some, some kind of sinful mindset. But as the cliche goes, if we're not careful, we may throw the baby out with the bathwater. The difference is really seen in the kind of treasure that we are seeking. Should you spend your life searching for the greatest value you can gain while you're alive? Yes, you should. To do anything else would be to waste your life. But the question is, what treasure are you searching for? What treasure is the central search of my life for? The Bible is clear that the love of money is a snare, but we don't throw out money. We know that there can be all kinds of experiences in this life that could lead us astray, but we don't throw out all of the experiences and become stoics. Rather, what we do is we focus in on the true treasure and we give our hearts to the pursuit and the quest to find and have it. But yet it's a challenge for us. When you hear the encouragement that you should try to increase your wealth and possessions as much as possible every day, you and I naturally say, no, I shouldn't, and we're right. Because that's not the ultimate treasure, is it? It's not about money and cars and houses. There is something else. There's something true and right. But when we hear the encouragement, you should try to increase your happiness in Christ more and more every day, we feel the same kind of tension. But nevertheless, this is what these two were doing. They were giving their lives to maximize their enjoyment of God's kingdom. As a treasure, God's kingdom is revealed to us as something that we should magnify and maximize. The Bible is clear that we should, like the value-minded merchant, seek to have more and more and more of God and his kingdom. That we would pursue him with all of our hearts, that we tomorrow would know him even just a little better. That we would be even just a step closer. That our happiness and joy and enjoyment of his grace would be just a little deeper that our appreciation and our praise for his abounding grace and mercy might be even just a little higher. This is the quest of the merchant, and we want to be like him. He was in search of fine pearls. We are in search of Christ. We are in search of an absolutely true, priceless pearl who is Christ himself. Listen to these few verses, just brief verses that help bring some of this home to us. There could be good reminders this week if you just jot down the address of the verses and look them up this week and use them in your quiet time and devotional. James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. A consistent plea of scripture is that God's people would ever draw near to him, never just living, never just coasting through the Christian life, but draw near to him. Or in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
Delight yourself in the Lord. Delighting yourself in the Lord is when you go to the Lord and you pour out your heart and you say, oh God, won't you give me more? I love you and I treasure you. You're the treasure of my heart and I want more. I want more of you. I want to know you more. I want to rest in you more. I want more happiness in you. I want more joy. I want more strength. I want more perseverance. I want more to be like you. That's the pursuit. Or in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will, will be open to you. The Bible over and over and over again keeps spurring us along by grace and by promise that we would continue to pursue the Lord, that he would not drift into the, to the background because so many other things are going on, but that he would be in the foreground and that he would be sought after above all else. If you want to think about this in three simple terms, I just gave them to you in those few verses. You could write them down and apply them to your Christian life in these coming weeks. Here they are again. Draw, delight, ask. Imagine for a moment, if you can, what would change in your life if you made over the coming weeks and even perhaps over the rest of your life, though I know it's hard to do because we're always kind of getting new tools and acronyms and lists of things thrown at us, but something like this, imagine if our lives could be tweaked and strengthened such that our focus was that I'm going to draw near to God, I want to delight in God, and I'm going to ask him to flood my life with good things his good things, the things that magnify him, the spiritual joys and realities of knowing him and belonging to him. Draw, delight, ask. And then finally, we notice this last truth before we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The reason that it is to be sought after above all else is because the gospel is not only a treasure but that it's worth everything we have. What I love about these, these verses is the way that the Bible, and in so many other places, makes the truth abundantly clear for me. It helps to bring what can be a kind of ethereal, foggy truth down to earth, and it does it by painting pictures like this. If I were to say to you, seek Christ Seek the gospel because it's worth more than anything. You might applaud that. You might find some delight in that. But even then, you wouldn't really understand what that means. We need it brought down into these terms. So this is the way it's brought down for us in these verses. Listen, first in verse 44, the man who found the treasure in the field. Then in his joy, he goes and sells. Here's the answer to the question. What does it mean it's worth more than anything? He sells everything he has. That's, a, that's much more specific than it's worth more than everything. It's worth more than everything you have by itself. Notice in verses 45 and 46. Verse 46, he went and found one priceless pearl. He went and sold everything he had. Imagine that. Imagine if you were to find a treasure so great 
that you immediately decided to sell everything you have. Let me help you imagine that. What are you going to sell? Here's a list of most of the things that you likely have. You might not have all of them, but all of us together collectively can understand what it means to sell everything we have if you think this way. To gain this treasure that you have found, you're going to sell your home and all of your property. You will sell your car and any other means of transportation you have. You are going to sell your personal identification documents, your passport, your driver's license. You're going to sell your financial assets, bank accounts, investments, retirement. You are going to sell mobile phone and all other communication devices. All of your clothing except one suit. And accessories, furniture, all household items, computer, laptop, important documents, birth certificate, insurance policies, family photos, and memorabilia. You're going to sell your health insurance policy, your personal hygiene products, your kitchen appliances and utensils, all of your educational requirements or or qualifications and certificates are sold. Personal mementos and sentimental items. Look at your hand. You may be wearing a wedding ring or some other jewelry. Sold. All of your books and reading material. Look at what else you have. Some of you have other books with you. You might have How People Change. Sold. All of your jewelry, all of your valuable possessions. All of your entertainment devices. TV, PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4, PlayStation 3, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 1, Sega, Nintendo, Atari. Goes back to my childhood. Everything. Your Band-Aids. Your broom your vacuum, your hangers, your dishes, everything. In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. He went and sold everything he had and bought that fine pearl. Is there anything in this world that you could imagine being worth so much that you would sell everything you have. My sons have, as they've grown up, had an interest in cars at times, and particular luxury cars, really fast sports cars. One that seemed to always come to the top of the list is a Bugatti. A Bugatti is worth about $550,000. And you know what's interesting? I don't believe this, but I was told that in the state of Ohio... Just the average, you take everyone together, I certainly don't have this, and you probably don't either. Uh, In average, the average net worth a person has in the state of Ohio is about $550,000. Would you, if you had net worth of $550,000, would you sell everything you had and buy a Bugatti? Would you? Probably would. I wouldn't. You gotta think through, where am I gonna sleep? Where am I gonna go to the bathroom? Where am I gonna put my clothes? Oh right, I don't have any, I sold them all. (laughs) Of course, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't sell everything you have and put it all into a car. It's not worth that. Even though it's worth $550,000, it's not worth that. The picture that's being painted for us in the scriptures today is that the gospel is worth that. It's worth that. If you had to, you would sell everything you have to get it if you valued it according to its true value. 
But I'm going to tell you something good. Good news. You don't have to. You don't have to sell everything you have to get it. Because someone else sort of sold everything he had in order to give it to you. He gave himself for it in order to earn it, win it, buy it, and deliver it to you once and for all. Jesus gave all in order to give this incredible treasure, this one priceless pearl to you and to me as a gift. And on top of that, here's what amazes me. Every time I hear it, he did it with 1,000% delight and happiness. Absolute joy. He did all of this so that he could give us this incredible treasure. Listen to what, Luke's, what we read in Luke chapter 12. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. And then it says something interesting right on the tail end there. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old and inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. It's an incredible reversal of what our natural thought is. When you see something that's of a great value and you want it, you think, maybe I should sell everything that I have in order to get it. But what has happened instead in the gospel is that Jesus has given us an incredible treasure such that without selling anything that we had, he gave it to us as a gift, and it has become so valuable to those who value it that everything else can just fade away. That all of these other things just fade away. They, they lose their allure. Yes, we enjoy them, but they are nothing compared to the gospel. They're nothing compared to Christ because he is worth everything we have. Nothing is so important as to overshadow or stop the invaluable kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that we belong to if we're in Christ. And therefore, we must, all of us, sanctify Christ and his kingdom as ultimate in our hearts. That's what we've been doing this month we have been trying to expand our vision of this good news, God's kingdom. We have been trying to, to increase the value which we see in it so that we can enjoy it all the more and so that his power and his goodness would be at work in our lives in, in, in powerful and good ways. And today we have this opportunity to show our appreciation for Christ by taking the Lord's Supper together, which we're going to do now. So those who are distributing the elements of the Lord's Supper, I'll ask you to come forward and uh, give some instructions here and pray, and then we'll distribute the, the bread and the fruit of the vine that we can enjoy the Lord's Supper together. As we come to the table of the Lord's Supper, this is an important time for all believers to, to examine ourselves, yes, but also to examine Christ. This is an opportunity for us to search for him. Taking the Lord's Supper is a uniquely Christian thing to do. Those who know that their faith is in Christ, that they belong to him, and that he has saved them by grace alone, they are those who can rightly take it because they can understand and see and celebrate it for what it's worth. But it's also possible that you may be here today and you're, you're not a Christian. It wouldn't be appropriate then for you to take it because it's a uniquely Christian thing to do. But rather, I would encourage you to think about what you've heard today 
and to interact, to pray to God and ask him that he would give you everything that you need so that you too could believe, that you could become a Christian, and that you could enjoy all of these good gifts that he's given to us in the gospel, namely knowing him and walking with him. And then take the Lord's Supper as a celebration of what he's done for you. And if that's you, we want to talk with you more. Please see me after the service or or anyone, church member sitting around you. We'd love to talk more about what it means to be a Christian. But if you're a Christian here today, whether you are a member of our church or not, we invite you to share with us in the Lord's Supper. This is an opportunity for us now, if you wish, to close your eyes and to meditate on God as we've been discussing today. And I'd like to encourage you to think about just how much the gospel actually means. What Christ has done, you've heard a bit of that this morning. Rehearse some of that in your heart and mind as you prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper so that as you take it, you will have new and fresh joy and appreciation and comfort in it. Let me pray and then we will um, distribute the elements and then come together to take this uh, together this morning. Father, We give you thanks for your word because your word is truth. It is life. It is what nourishes us. We are nourished on your words. And when we come to your words, we are amazed to find that they are not words of berating. They are not dark words in the gospel, but they are bright words. They are words of hope and promise and joy. They are words of treasure, of treasure sought and treasure found. They are words of knocking on doors and doors being opened, of asking and receiving. They are are words of resting in you. They are words of grace and mercy and delight. And we pray that as we take the Lord's Supper today that you would delight us with it by the remembrance of what it means and perhaps even valuing it more than we have in the past, that we would appreciate what you have done even more this morning. And I certainly pray for anyone who would be here who is not a Christian, has not yet come to faith in Christ. According to the gospel that we have been proclaiming, we pray that you would give them everything that they need. You would overcome any obstacle and that you would draw them to yourself so that you might save them and change them and make them yours and you theirs. And we pray that we would celebrate together now in a small way And we would celebrate again in the future in a big way when we are finally in your kingdom. May this be a precursor, a foreshadowing of the joy and the value that we will know in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.